Let's start. I wanted to um, any any prayer requests. I'd like to I'd like to um, move into our prayer. I see. Where are we? Um, With the reading, what is this? The what is today, Friday? <clears throat> March first. I got the wrong one. Robert. Huh? That's February. No, I know, Doc. I'm looking for the reading that we heard earlier in the week. But Thursday. Because it it um, it applies so well to um, what we're doing, yeah. Here, I'm I'm going to read both readings in case any of you worded mass, and it 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 provides a really good perspective on the purgatory, but it also um, is a good indication of how theologically sound Dante was, that the story uh, was so rooted in scripture. Even, even, even if we, the Divine Comedy is not catechetical. That's not its purpose. It's an artwork. If he wanted to be catechetical, he could have written a treatise. It's a story. It has to be read as an epic. <clears throat> but I'm sure you all know by now that there's nothing that takes place in the story that didn't get its structure from scripture and the practices of the church. <clears throat> this was, <clears throat> sorry, these are the two readings on Thursday. So let's begin. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our lives from you, the gift of yourself, particularly in the Mass this morning. Um, it's a reminder of your having given your life on a cross suffered an unbearable death that we could have life. You ask us to join you to pick up our, each of us, to pick up our crosses, to follow you, and to bring you to the world. Um, help each of us to do that, and help each of us to um, receive what these poets are giving us, to find a strength in what they give us, to bring you to the world um, by the by the powers of our reason that we can explain, make sense of our faith, and by a greater faith as well. Here are the two readings. <clears throat> this is a reading from Sirach. Rely not on your wealth, say not, I have the power. Rely not on your strength, in following the desires of your heart. Say not, who can prevail against me? Or, who will subdue me for my deeds? For God will surely exact the punishment. Say not, I have sinned, yet what has befallen me? For the Most High bides his time of forgiveness. Be not overconfident, adding sin upon sin. Say not, great is his mercy. My many sins he will forgive. For mercy and anger alike are with him. Upon the wicked alights his wrath. Delay not your conversion to the Lord. Put it not off from day to day. For suddenly his wrath flames forth. At the time of vengeance you will be destroyed. 
Rely not upon deceitful wealth, for it will be no help on the day of wrath. The word of the Lord. The beauty of this passage, it seems to me, is um, Sirach is reminding us not to take mercy for granted, to assume that God will always, because there's an element of presumption. Father Flynn used to talk about the dangers of that, and he would call it cheap grace, and cheap mercy that we, we don't take seriously enough putting away our sins. We treat them lightly and go on. We're, we're heading towards Lent. I, I don't know if, who goes to daily Mass, but we're heading towards Lent. And if, you, if you've been um, at Mass in the mornings, you, you can hear there's a, a greater degree of severity. We're getting warnings more and more and more as we set up for Lent. Um, I thought this was beautiful because it's the only it's the only passage that I'm aware of. I didn't even hear Paul doing that, in which a prophet warns us about taking mercy for granted, you know, because it, knowing that God will forgive us sometimes makes it easier for us to treat our sins lightly. Here's a stern warning not to do that. <coughs> this is this is the gospel, and you can <laughs> if the first reading seems stern, wait on this. Gospel according to Mark. Jesus said to his disciples, Anyone who gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ, amen. I say to you who will surely uh, will surely not lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were put around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter into life maimed than with two hands to go into Cana, into the unquenchable fire. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life crippled than with two feet to be thrown into Cana. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Better for you to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into Gehenna. Where their worm does not die, and the fire is not quenched. Everybody will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if salt becomes insipid, with what will you restore its flavor? Keep salt in yourselves, and you will have peace with one another. The Gospel of the Lord. Um, help us to take these readings seriously, Lord, um, and to find a strength in the work that we're doing right now with Dante. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Um, I, I don't want to give a homily on this. I'm going to, but let me just say this. Um, I don't think Christ is asking us to cut off our limbs, but I think he is asking us very seriously. If there's a part of us um, that is keeping us from becoming whole, cut it out, whatever it is drinking, food, sex, money, well, you know, whatever it is. Take seriously about putting it away. The interesting line here, um, and uh, you know, it lines up with purgatory in one way. You remember as we got towards the bottom, or not the, uh, purgatory, inferno. We got towards the bottom of the inferno, um, the settings were all in ice, mm -hmm. not fire. And the typical image representing hell is fire. <clears throat> I remember having a conversation with Father before he left about this. Um, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, 
Um, it's better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into, into the unquenchable fire. There can be a metaphorical aspect to that. I just want to touch on this, a metaphorical aspect. It doesn't, it doesn't say Dante's not orthodox in using ice, because Dante's really clear. The one thing that defines every one of the souls in hell is an unquenchable fire. Their desires will not go out. There's an unquenchable wanting. Remember the one that I expressed my own nervousness about, that guy who runs off with a flag? I remember taking some time with it, as if he were winning the race. And I used that as an image to illustrate the point that so often what we do in life, we carry over. So if we're not aware of it, and that's what we take into the next life, that's what we will be doing forever. That will be our forever. That's what we'll do. We won't even feel a past or a future. They're gone. What we'll, we'll be locked in that eternal present doing that thing because we want it more than anything else. That's an unquenchable fire. That worm, that worm will never be satisfied. That wanting will never be answered because God's out of the picture to answer it. Is that clear? So it's interesting, you know, this unquenchable fire it will not be quenched, will not die. And I've said this before, remember when Dante passes through the last ledge at the top of purgatory, he has to pass through a fire. There's a purgatorial fire defining everything in the purgatory. It's learning to order our desires and putting our desires more on God. Um, where they can, Only he can answer them. Right. When we put those desires in everything else, you know that we always get disappointed. Unless they become habitual and we don't give them up, then we're caught. So, okay, let's do my last touches. <clears throat> I want to try to keep this very, very brief. Let me just give you the context. Remember, I, I, we had done uh, the, the Spanish cloister, and I said then that we have to look at Browning as a prototype of a model for Eliot. What Browning did was rare because remember, after, after the Romantics, you've got Wordsworth, Blake, um, Shelley, Byron, and Keats, those great Romantics, all of whom, in a sense, exalted in the private ego, the self, or nature. That was the romantic, that's, that's an awful simplification, but it's true in some sense. We get to the Victorian age, and Browning's the first one who goes into the lyric interior inside and shows evil. You can't find that in the Romantics. You get it in Shakespeare and Dunn centuries earlier, but it's gone. Um, it's as if the Protestant Reformation and the scientific worldview took reason away and left nature and the imagination. So the imagination becomes everything to the Romantic poets. Because science now, or reason now, belongs to the sciences. Um, Brownie is the first poet who writes a poem that's a lyric that goes into the interior that does not romanticize things. Doesn't sentimentalize. He's not showing how good the, the poet's affections are. He's showing that there are evils lurking inside. Same way with Prufrock, same way with Spanish Cloister.
okay? Are we all together? You, you holding on? I feel like I'm getting close to an English class here. I want to be careful. Is everybody okay? Prufrock takes us in. He's a damn figure. Um, Spanish cloister shows us that friar who has nothing good to say or feel towards Brother Friar or Lawrence. And now we get this, last touches. What we've got is a nobleman who's lost his wife, who's um, welcoming um, an emissary from a very wealthy man and trying to arrange, who's trying to arrange for a marriage with the daughter. So the, the count is contemplating marriage, but if you watch him and what he does, he's trying to do everything to leverage his position in order to get an increased dowry, more wealth. So it's all very subtle, seems innocent enough, nothing's going on, he's just, he's meeting with this man who was sent by this wealthy person to see if a marriage is possible, okay? My last touches. <coughs> I think he takes him upstairs, and like so many wealthy Renaissance figures, his house is full of artwork, so there are paintings everywhere, and he's showing this emissary a painting of his wife, as if it's in memory of her and the affection that he, a man would feel for his wife if he had a painting on a wall, okay? That's the, that's the context. <coughs> that's my last duchess painted on the wall, looking as if she were alive. I call that piece a wonder now, for Pandolf's hands work busily a day, and there she stands. Will it please you sit and look at her, I said, for Pandolf by design, for never read strangers like you that pictured continents, the depth and passion of its earnest glance. But to myself they turn, since none puts by the curtain I have drawn for you but I, and seemed as they would ask me if they durst how much a glance came there. Think about the Mona Lisa and for the commentary for centuries on what that glance of hers, what that expression means. He's doing the same thing. I think Brownie's playing on that illusion because people would be familiar with the Mona Lisa and talk about it. Except it's, it's sort of self-flattering because this is his wife. And, and then he says, um, he's only shown it to this man. He, he pulls the curtains by. And seemed as they would ask me if they durst how such a glance came there. So not the first are you to turn and ask thus. Sir, t'was not her husband's presence only. Called that spot of joy into the duchess's cheek. Perhaps Fra Bandolf, Pandolf chanced to say, her mantle laps over my lady's wrist too much, or paint must never hope to reproduce the faint half-flush that dies along her throat. Such stuff was courtesy, she thought, and cause enough for calling up that spot of joy. She had a heart, how shall we say, too soon made glad, too easily impressed. She liked whatever she looked on, and her looks went elsewhere, Every everywhere. Sir, t'was all one, my favor at her breast, the dropping of the daylight in the west, the bough of cherry some officious fool broke in the orchard, orchard for her, the white mule she rode with round the terrace, all and each would draw from her alike the approving speech or blush at least. She thanked men, good, but thanked somehow, I know not how, as if she ranked my gift of a 900 years old name with anybody's gift. Is everybody following me? He's got this vanity because of his ancestry. He belongs to a landed family name. Mm -hmm. And we get the sense from this line that 
that his wife should have thought more of that than she did. Um, so his vanity, his arrogance, his self-centeredness, how much he identifies with that. Um, Who'd stoop to blame this sort of trifling, even had you skill in speech, which I have not, to make your will quite clear and to such a one and say, just that, just this or that, and you disgust me. Here you miss or there you exceed the mark. And if she let herself be lessened so, nor plainly set her wits to yours for sooth and made excuse, even then would be some stooping, and I doubt never to stoop. Oh, sir, she smiled, no doubt, where I passed her, but who passed without much the same smile? Obviously, is jealous or unease, um, first of all, aware that she didn't adore him because he's got this family, and that she seemed to give smiles as easily to other people as her husband. Oh, sir, she smiled, no doubt, wherever I passed her, but who passed without much the same smile? This grew. I gave commands, then all smiles stopped together. There she stands as if alive. Now, I hope you're hearing, these are rhyme couplets. They're all rhyme couplets, and you almost don't hear them mm -hmm. because the sentences flow so smoothly. Mm -hmm. But you can't get more traditional than this. Even, even though the lines run over. I gave commands and then all smiles stopped together. There she stands as if alive. Will it please you rise? We'll meet the company below then. I repeat, the Count your master's known munificence is ample warrant that no just pretense of mine for dowry will be disallowed. Notice how understated that is. Um, I won't refuse anything if he wants to give me more. So he doesn't just crassly come out. He's eloquent. And he said earlier, remember, he has no gift of language. He's, he's a master of manipulating words in, in all of this. He knows exactly what he's doing. <clears throat> I repeat, to count your master's known munificence is ample warrant that no just pretense of mine for dowry will be disallowed. Though his fair daughter's self, as I avowed, at starting, is my object, they will go down together, sir. Notice Neptune, though, taming a seahorse through a rarity, which thought. thought. So, oh, see, thought. Notice Neptune, though, taming a seahorse, thought a rarity, which claws of Innisbrook cast in bronze for me. I haven't thought enough of that image of Neptune taming a seahorse, <coughs> a god taming something wild. I mean, if there's anything, it's an irony of what he hasn't done himself. Very quick, any ironies, any obvious ironies to this before we leave it? He's cunning, he's manipulative. Um, He's vain and proud of his lineage. He makes that more than his love of his wife. Mm -hmm. um, some of the ironies. The two greatest ironies for me in the poem are, are these. Um, the, the first is he loves art. His house is probably full of artwork. And it's pretty clear that he loves art more than he does his wife. 
or more than he did his wife. And there's, I think there's this behind it, that a piece of art can be perfect. Mm -hmm. And it's so clear from the way he describes his wife that she wasn't perfect in the way he would have wanted her to be. And, and that means for himself. I mean, whatever he asked of her was really for him, not for her. That's the one. Um, and it's sad because I, I believe, I believe this pretty deeply, we live in the same kind of a culture today. We, we, get, we give too much value to aesthetic things. Um, I, th I think one of the reasons there's a large part of the American world, I can certainly understand, for disliking Trump to the degree that they do is because he's so unesthetic. He, he does not represent the calm, suave, educated, poised, you know, everything that Obama sort of exuded in his presence. He's roughing, you know, and, and I think that, that offends people as much as anything else. If you think about how much time we spend on the computer looking at images, cars, TV, advertisements, and the way things are dressed up, we, we live in an age that asks us to appreciate things for their aesthetic appearances. So it's not a, it's, it's not, it's an ongoing theme in art, I mean, but here it's made explicit. Um, the, the way he points out in detail the beauties of the work, the way the, the painter did her throat and you know, her eyes and that, that spark of joy that is captured in her expression, all of that. Such a fine sense of detail. Um, the, the graver, I mean, it, or an equally grave irony is that his wife is dead and he's wooing another person. And one of the questions we have to ask Second page. Um, oh, sir, she smiled, no doubt, wherever I passed her, whenever I passed her, but who passed without much the same? She, she, looked, she looked at everybody equally as if he wasn't her husband and she didn't favor him the way she should have. But who passed without much the same smile? This grew, I gave commands, then all smiles stopped together. The irony of that word, I gave commands. I mean... Debbie, what's, when you said, what's shaking your head, what, what are you saying? Well, it, one of the things that I thought, and, I, and I'm not absolutely sure about this, I, when I was looking back, did he have a cover over this picture and, and, with, and drew it back so he could mm -hmm. see it? Mm -hmm. Okay, that's what I thought. And, and so <clears throat> it, it seems to me that he was so jealous of, of the fact that she was... She seemed like a really good person, <laughs> a really good person, because she treated everyone with the same sort of dignity that she treated her husband, and he was jealous of that, and so he put a cover over her so that the smile that she had, other people couldn't see when she was dead, you know, in the painting. So he, I, I'm not sure if that's what this is saying. That's one, I'm, I'm, I'm asking about this word, I, this grew, I gave commands, then all smiles stopped together. That's not dark enough. Ah, so she died. <laughs> yeah, the question is how? <laughs> yeah, that, that's, true. Ooh, that's true. Oh, holy cow. Ooh, that's even, <laughs> that's even darker though. Does everybody know where I'm going on this? That he had her murdered? Mm -hmm. Okay. Because she didn't pay him enough homage. 
Yeah, I mean, all, yeah. And will any woman ever for him? Oh, probably not. No, and so what does it mean for the next woman that he's going to marry? I mean, this count, this, you know. So the picture, the, the remember, Prufrock, last, or the Spanish cloister, and now my last duchess. Hold these lyrics, these images of man's interior, what the rest of the world can't see, what's invisible going on inside of us. Hold those up against the lyric tradition in general, and you'll see the modern world has entered into a real darkness. Um, and part of it's in answer to the, what you can call the sentimental treatment of the lyric in the Romantic period. Wordsworth, others. <coughs> so in the last three poems we read, Proofrock, Spanish Cloister, My Last Duchess, we're, we're the, <laughs> the veil has been <laughs> pulled back and we're seeing that the human soul is much more capable of evil than the world wanted to admit. And the world went through a, um, a real change and the poetry got sentimentalized, cheap, if you want to call it. Um, it exalted the imagination, what poets could do to it, the love they expressed for things. But there was a dark side to it all that the poets didn't see. And Browning comes along and does this and then Eliot in our time. So. I should have read these earlier when we were doing the Inferno, but well, what, what's that? <coughs> Back to the Purgatorio where there's light. There's a little hope. There's hope there. Yes. Yes. Okay, quickly. Last week um, we saw that um, Dante was um, revealing a, a very, um, a very profound truth about um, us as humans and how responsible or irresponsible we are in what we do. Okay. So in Anti-Purgatory, Dante comes across a number of souls and we can get so caught up with each individual soul that we miss the relationship between them and the whole that they form, okay? Remember, um, Casella had just come off the boat, then he met with Sordello, um, Bellacqua, Buocante, um, and... Um, Pia, I think, and then the princes. And I asked what the relationship was between those people um, to clarify what Dante was doing because we can get so caught up on the details that we can miss with the, the whole that they form. What we see when we look at that relationship between those individuals is has to do with the principle of responsibility, whether people are taking responsibility um, to involve God, to work with God in recovering their freedom. That's really what's at issue. Whether they were working with God to recover their freedom or they were making whatever they wanted more important than everything else in their life. Um, and what we saw is those farther away were less responsible. Um, 
Sardello was excommunicated. He was outside the church. He just blew it off. Balacqua, if you remember, was languid and lazy. He could not even lift up his head. He didn't care about things. The people he meets as he gets closer to the gate are late repentance. They put off repenting until the very end. So presumably there was something more responsible in them, but they just didn't act on it soon enough, and their lives were cut off. Then when he gets to the, the Valley of the Princes, just before he um, ascends to St. Peter's Gate, he encounters princes who were too preoccupied. So presumably they're that close to the gate because they were good men, they were serving people, but they, um, but they were too preoccupied to, to serve God in a better way. I think I put it that way. Is that clear? So over and over and over again, everywhere, as in Shakespeare here, Dante's showing us that we are responsible for our choices. We have free will. And we, we cannot, and according to his view, we cannot become completely virtuous or good without God's help. Because our original faults have to do with him, our ties with him. It's interesting that Father's reading of the homily this morning had to do with, he's talking about married couples and divorces, and he said the one problem with married couples is um, they make their marriage more important than God. They don't make God, they don't give God the importance they should in what they do in their marriage. Um, their friendship with God is not great enough to help the friendship with each other. Dante showing us the same thing here. Okay, man can't recover his original goodness. He will never know the freedom he was meant to have if he, if he doesn't straighten out his life with God. And all of these people, in one degree or another, had put that off. Okay? And that's why they're lined up in the order in which they are. Okay? Um, the Trinity of Persons, major, it's been a major concern for me the last couple of weeks. And I, I think I've taken us into Paul's third heaven. I mean, it's a level of such abstraction, but I want to just quickly review it again here. Um, remember for Dante, the Trinity's um, the, the Trinity isn't something to just be technically imposed on his work. It informs everything he does. Every one of the canticles, <coughs> Inferno, Purgatory, Paradiso, is structured around a Trinity, Trinitarian structure. The Terza Rima is Trinitarian, and it's wonderful the way it keeps that same form while moving forward. It's the same thing in motion. It's still and moving would be Eliot's words. Um, but it, it plays out in a more obscure way, and I don't want to just leave it as a structural principle. So I, I reminded everybody of the, of the parallels between man and God. They're Trinitarian. Um, remember that according to St. Thomas, there are traces of the Trinity everywhere in creation, in everything. Every single, a leaf, a snail, doesn't matter. Everything in creation has these same three qualities. Thomas would have called them mode, form, and order. To the extent that anything is, it has one of those three properties. Thomas said that the clearest um, evidence of the Trinity in humans was this fact. Um, 
we are made in God's image, and if we're made in his image, we should reflect his nature. Remember, um, um, for, for God, he is all-being, all-knowing, all-loving. One of these is not a part of a whole. His being is not a part of a whole. His knowing is not a part. And his loving is not a part. So his knowing isn't less than his being or love. Remember, and I used the example that I think Thomas used. I can't. If we looked at things from our perspective, we would say about parts and wholes that one is less than two and three. And two and three is more than one, right? We know that. One is less than two. And two is more than one because we're in a limited world. Thomas says, no, that, that um, God the Father is not more than or less than the whole Trinity because he's one with it. And the Son is the same. Since God is all being, God is all being, he's all loving. Loving is not a part of him. Knowing isn't a part of him. It's one with him. That's why you have three persons, Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Okay? So that analogy is really important, and I'm not putting it out here just as a philosophic abstraction because it's going to play out in what's ahead of us. Is everybody clear in that? The Father is not less than or more than the whole of the Trinity. He's not less than the Son and Spirit. God is all being. That means the Son is all being. The Spirit is all being. They share one nature. They're, they're, they're different according to their relationships. Okay? God is not prior to the Son. It's not prior. The Son is begotten because the Son is one with His nature. So what's expressed in Father and Son in the Trinity is not what it is for us. For us, a Father and Son are different. My Son is apart from me. I'm apart from Him. Hopefully, um, my authority... My serving will be greater than his, hopefully. So, right? Different relationship in time. So for us, um, because we're contingent creatures, we all have being, we are, we all know, and we all love. But because we're contingent creatures, these are not subsistent realities the way here they're subsistent, they go on forever. Because we're contingent, they can be parts. A human being can be alive, he can be, and be in a coma. He cannot know and love. We're contingent, we're not subsistent beings. So for us, they can be parts. Now obviously that, that opens up some problematic areas. If something happens to a person and he's put in a coma or his mind goes, he may not be able to know that he can still be alive. Some people would question whether he's legitimate. He could be legitimately considered alive at that point, whether he's not just a veg. You know. So I know there are problems. I don't want to go there. What I want to do is is ask everybody to hold on to this, and and it's for this reason. <coughs> Remember that. Um, what's going on in, if we take St. Augustine's view, St. Augustine said the, the three powers that line up with God are memory, understanding, and will. 
memory, understanding, and will. And it gave the example from the ancient Greek world of the, of, of the source of all inspiration. Remember Zeus and Mimosine uh, mated. And Mimosine means mnemonic. Those things having to do with memory, they facilitate memory. They produce the nine muses. And the nine, nine is the multiple of three. It's amazing, square and three. And the memory here meant a cosmic memory. It meant everything. It was all there. Um, if you look at the Greek geneal the genealogy of the gods, you watch them unfolding with the... There's a reason behind it. What they were doing in the imagination is sort of incredible. But Mimosini would have been everything that was knowable in the cosmic world. So for Zeus, the father of the gods, the lord of the gods, to mate with Mimosini, was their way of explaining the source of purpose and... Um, inspiration in all creative work, everything going on in the world. St. Augustine said that um, one, of the one of the ways in which the Trinity is reflected in us is that we have this Trinitarian power. Memory is that place into which we go when we're attempting to recover what we've lost. If we've lost something, we go to our memory to try to find it. But for Augustine, memory would have not meant mechanically what it would have been, say, for Skinner or a modern empiricist. For him, memory would have meant everything, absolutely everything. Um, God doesn't have a memory because there's no past, but everything is contained in God. All things are contained there. All things are contained in us, whether we remember them. I'm, I'm sure everybody's aware that you know that everything in your life is contained in your memory. Imagine, imagine coming to a point at the end of your life and being given the light so that you could look into your memory. You'd see everything that had ever happened to you. And what had happened to you would be very different from what happened to somebody else. What Frances experienced in her whole life before she met Fred would be there. Same for Fred, all of us. Memories where you go to find what you've lost. For St. Augustine, that would have meant more than anything to recover that original wholeness that we had with God, that in Eden we were whole. One of the effects of the fall was that we lost that sense of wholeness. Now hold on to this, because this is where it's going. Every, at every level in the purgatorio, um, one of the effects of the penance that people do, what happens as a result of the humility that they bring to what they're doing, to take on these penance, is that a layer of blindness is stripped away and they, are, they begin to recover that wholeness that they once had. So they're beginning to see in a different way. We'll see it in a few moments. That each level, Dante experiences a different way of seeing, truly a different way of seeing. And we're made aware that one of the strongest principles in question as he goes to Purgatory is seeing. Because we can't love what we don't know. We have to see the right way. If we, let's say we have a black-white mindset and we see the world that way. It's going to be very, very different from somebody who looks at the world in sense of, with a sense of holes, the way God does. So um, what's happening as he goes up purgatory is he's, 
he and the penitents are learning to recover a more complete sight, a more whole way, a fullness in the way they see things. Okay? And here's, here's where this is going. This is what I want to leave everybody with. As, as Dante goes up purgatory, he and Virgil will begin, will begin to read each other's minds. They will anticipate each other, have a sense. When he gets into the Paradiso with Beatrice, she will know what Dante is thinking before he says it. He will come to a point where he will do the same. Because... They're indwelling. They're, they're, they're becoming one. This is the great, Buddhism is different. In Buddhism, you lose your individuality, you become one, a part of this conglomeration. In Christianity, you, you never lose your individuality. You are who you are. You'll get the same body back at the resurrection, a glorified body back, but it'll be yours, you. But the irony is you remain who you are while becoming one with another. So what's happening is they're beginning to, the Trinity is the source of things. They're indwelling one with each other. One isn't a part of a whole. They perfectly indwell. If we're made and we're God's image, that's what we will recover. So, and we'll see it more and more in the Paradiso when we finally get there. But the, the point is this. Dante and the penitents and the souls in heaven no longer see each other um, as we, they, as subject-object, subject-other, because we all live in that dichotomy. It's one of the effects of the fall. I and you, you know, completely other. Um, as people return to God and they, and they finally get to heaven, they will see each other as wholes. They will be one with each other exactly in the way it is in the Trinity. So the idea of a marriage helping to make a couple one flesh is not a romantic metaphor. It's what we've been called to in our faith. And think about that we've done this Catholic Protestant thing. Take away the sacraments. Take away the Eucharist. Take away any of those things. If, if God isn't giving us his life, can we really recover that wholeness? You know, following? So the, the, the climate purgatory, that image of the mountain is really an image of the church. It, it, I've said that before. It's the church. It's, 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 the, it's presence on earth. <coughs> Everything that goes on there corresponds to what should be going on here in our church. Involvement in the sacraments, prayer, singing, penance, picking up our burdens, knowing that as we do, our sight will change. Our hearts will change. As we love better, as we see better, we will enter into the life of another more completely. Same thing with that person with us. So recovering wholeness is not an abstraction the way we use in our world. It's meant to take us back to this, where the Father was not less or more than, that he was completely one with them. So that's the great paradox that at the end of this journey and, and what Purgatory is pointing to to recover that same wholeness, that we, we remain who we are, individuals, but we become absolutely one with everybody else. We're going to see that. I'm, when we get to the level of um, envy, when we turn to the text in a minute, we'll see it more clearly, I think. Okay, let me, let me, let me stop. Any brief questions? I don't want to take too much time because we've got other stuff, and I really want to get into the text today.
Um, any questions? Does everybody have a sense of what I'm, this wholeness that awaits, that we won't be as we are now? Subject, object, that dichotomy will, will fade. It will not be there. Um, it's like an I and we together, one. Another way, think about our selfishness, the way our selfishness isolates us, you know, makes us isolated from another, that we're so concerned with ourselves that Father's homily spoke so directly, this idea of friendship, of being one with another, of entering into a friendship with each other. And it's interesting, if you think about it, the ultimate source of friendship would be the Trinity, you know. Um, I think, I missed it in the reading, because Suzanne and I came in late, but I thought in the, in the Sirach that he was saying, I, I may have misheard it when I came in, it said, a friend is another self. That's, that's out of Aristotle. And, but there it is biblically in the, you know, in the Old Testament tradition. A friend is another self. That um, we are together, different from each other, and one at the same time. Let me stop. Any? No? Are those questions or, or just thoughtfulness? I'm, help me out here, you guys. I'm good. <laughs> you okay? Nobody has questions. Was that all obvious? Well, I, I just, I think, I, I, I get it because his Dante moves up, he loses a P. I mean, he's gradually getting his memory back. He's becoming one fuller, with... Yeah. Fuller and fuller, fuller and fuller. Oh, I think it's so. easier and easier to climb, too, you know. The, the, the more you practice... Remember, remember, what the church is saying here, and I'll, I'll make this clear as we go along, particularly as we get more in the book and away from these perspectives that I'm trying to set out, is that the object of every level is returns to a virtue to help us become virtuous, to answer our excesses. Virtue is a means between two extremes. And each one of us has different problems. We have different... Drinking may be a problem for drugs, sex. Every, each one of us has a different problem. But every one of us has to struggle to overcome that and become virtuous. So every level, pride, envy, anger, wrath, sloth, avarice, gluttony, lust, it, each one of those represents a sin, a disorder. The answer to it is a virtue. We have, we have to... Does the Protestant world have a clue about virtue? If you're saved, why? Why bother? The Catholic tradition is steeped in... We have a nature. God gave it to us. We've got sins. We've been called to become virtuous. How many people in our world give that, give that a notion? Absolutely lost. How do we answer our sins? Our... our Response is, go to confession, go to the Eucharist. If we're not actively doing something to, to answer our disorders, what are we doing? We were meant to be virtuous, to meant to be good. The temperance, prudence, courage, wisdom, justice, you know, those, those are things we have to work at. And we, our tradition is, if we work at them, we become more virtuous. We give faith a help. Faith, grace perfects nature. It's... We have stuff to do to deepen our faith, 
to make it more complete, so that they're not at odds with each other the way they are for the Protestant world at large. So every, on every level, the penitents are working off a sin by practicing a virtue, and they're learning to wait. Remember, one of the rules is you can't climb when the sun goes down. You, since everything depends on God, you just can't do this yourself. I'm going to do this. It's the great American claim. I'm sufficient to myself. What purgatory is showing we're not. You've got to learn to wait on God to trust you. It's Father's homily. It's really amazing the way these things line up. So, Bob, I have, I have not a question. I have a comment. Mm -hmm. um, that whole discussion on, on wholeness and um, that we're going to be one with each other and we'll, we'll, we'll have knowledge. And love. It's frightening. <laughs> it is really frightening because I know that God knows what I have done in my life. Yes. But you guys don't. Right. And the thought that everyone is going to know, it's like, holy Hannah, that is terrible. It's frightening. It really is. By the way, I said the same thing to Suzanne that night at our house, you know. I don't want to go into this, but the humility you showed it. Anyway, I'm, bless your soul for what you just said. I'm not sure how to. Re I mean, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, it is. I don't it's want. Terrifying. And I, like, and I, I, I don't want you people to know. Yeah. <laughs> don't worry. I really don't. I'm in worse shape than you are. See, see, see I'm, I'm with Fred because whatever you think, there's not a question in my mind that my sins are so much worse than yours. Oh, I don't know. That. No, here, anyway, we we can all debate that here. I want to say this. I want to say this. Remember this. Nobody gets into heaven. In heaven, the, soul, the sins are gone. The sins are gone. So there's no transparency. There's no, oh, God, did you do that? It's, not, it's gone. It's gone. And up purgatory, I don't, ha I don't have any idea how this is going to play out. What Dante shows us is that at every level, sinners are learning to deal with a particular sin. Pride is at the root of all of them. I think it's... Well, and that's exactly yeah. what this is. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, you, you want to have a face. You know, I want, I want us to like each other and, and, and think that I'm okay. Yes. And and the reality is, you start peeling back the onion. You're going, holy moly! See, I, I don't worry about that. Cause I'm going to be in purgatory so long. And you guys are going to remember me when I get back. <laughs> See, the, the, the good thing, I hope, everybody, I hope everybody's hearing this. The good thing that's happening right now, whether she wants to acknowledge it with, her, with the despair that she's expressing in humor about her own sins, don't anybody overlook this, that right now she's carrying these enormous boulders because everything she said, I think, was said in a spirit of humility, or she wouldn't have said it. She would have just shut up. So... Whatever else she wants to say about it, um, in that dark side or so, something is already lifting her. She couldn't have said that. Here, I want to go back to my point. At, at every level, I think there has to be some sense of um, each other's sins. We don't know that because Dante doesn't show us that, but at the level of pride. There's nobody there who doesn't know that everybody's there because of their pride. How transparent that is, I don't know. That's not Dante's. Because at some point, some point... We cannot let that be a concern because that's our pride again. Mm -hmm. Look at me how bad I am. Mm -hmm. it, that's exactly right. It's, it's yourself. Right. It's in the way. What you're, I think what he's showing us in purgatory is 
if you're still saying, oh, look how bad I am, I don't want, I don't want other people to see me, our self is in the way again. Yep. In, pur- in purgatory, that's out of the way. You're not concerned about what other people will think. You're too busy getting on because that's what you didn't do in, or hopefully that's what you would have done in life, but that's what you're doing there. Remember, this is an image of the church. This is what, I, I believe this pretty, this is what we should be doing all day long, every day. If we're not, we're putting off friendship. It's exactly what Father's homily was about. That's what we're doing. It's not a cause for despair. I've written a couple of letters to my kids. I'm going to write another one, you know, to some things. But we cannot, we cannot let our sins focus on ourselves. Because if we do, we're back in our pride and we're back in despair. No matter how bad we feel about him, what's the first thing Dante does when he comes on the shores of purgatory? Washes his face and says, no more. What's the warning from the, the angel guardian of the gates? Do not look back. What does looking back mean? Oh, myself. Mm-hmm. Myself. There's my sin again. You know, I have one, one more comment. And this, um, I went to confession one time with Father Dave, and um, he said to me, God has already forgiven, forgiven you. I'm going to cry. Yeah. God has already forgiven you. The hard part is forgiving yourself. yourself. Yeah. And yeah, I, he... I, I mean, how long ago was that? Father B hasn't been around <laughs> a long, long, long time. But it's, it's right. Sure, it is. Yeah, it is. I mean, just think about it. I'm so glad for you. How hard it is to put ourselves away. You know, always. But by the way, I can't think of a... Of, of a greater piece of evidence of one of the effects of the fall. Before the fall, it wasn't there. One of the, remember, our, our love is turned towards God in the before. When we turn that love away from Him, there's no longer an object for this infinite love we want, for an infinite being. It turns back on ourselves, what we want. But it's infinite. It will never, the, the worm that will never, the unquenchable worm, it will never go out. So it's either we're going to carry it into hell or it will return to our object and, it, and it's, if this purgatory is a part of it, it will cleanse it. We will do away with this self, this ego, and learn to love, become one with another. <clears throat> I feel like we've gotten out of the working into catechism Sorry. pretty directly here. <laughs> Sorry. No, 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 no. I'm genuinely glad for it. Maybe we should stop here. <laughs> what? I said there's plenty to think about. <laughs> okay, just very quickly. Everybody knows what the, remember, the contrapassos contra don't stop. We saw that in the Inferno, we're seeing it here. The contrapasso is an image of the sin and its effects. That was true in the Inferno, it's true here. At the level of the proud, the, the contrapasso or the boulders and the effect that they have on sight. Just for an example, the, the uh, contrapasso at the level of envy is the, the fact that the penitents have their eyes wired shut and they move around in darkness. The contrapasso at the level of wrath is smoke. They can't see through the smoke. Every one of those is an image exposing the sin. The goad, but the difference is in purgatory, the contrapasso is put to good effect. Right? In the inferno, it's not. They're trapped in it. 
every, every sin has its own form. The sins at every level of the um, inferno um, def define the lies. They show us what the lies of the, the damned were. In the in inferno, um, the goads on checks are graces offered the penitents to help them correct their sins. So what are the goads and checks? Everybody should know right now. I'm going to give a quiz. I'm going to stop threatening. I'm going to give you guys a quiz. What are the goads and checks? What's a goad? The goad is an image of the virtue opposite the sin. <clears throat> What's the virtue opposite pride? Wow. What's the virtue opposite pride? Humility. Humility. So at each level, Dante will see goads and checks of that particular sin. Mary is the first goad on every level. Absolutely. Because she is the embodiment of the best of our human nature. She was given a grace. Others weren't. In her, we see every natural virtue. The first is humility. There will be others. So the goads are images of the virtue opposite. They're present on every level to help encourage the penitents in their um, struggles. The checks are images of the sin itself. It's, it's meant to um, deter, to keep the, the penitent from repeating the sin. It's a constant reminder of what their sin looks like. So at every level, the penitents are seeing images of their sin. It's a reminder of what they have to do. And notice that. They can't, here, the typical American, be happy, put the past away. The, the Catholic world says, keep your sins with you. Hold on to them. They're a stay. As they go around, the, let's say, in the level of pride, as the penitents go around, they're constantly encountering checks, images of the sin, so they can see what it is they're trying to do away with. If we put that out of our mind, we don't have the help from ourselves that we should have by a reminder. We don't want to do that. Once we start forgetting it, what do we do? Slip back into the sin. Mm -hmm. The minute we get light, there we are again. Mm -hmm. All of us. So the goads and the checks are necessary. At every level there are goads and checks and there's also a beatitude. And there's also a prayer, particular, peculiar to each is appropriate for each level. And the beatitude is a blessing. Remember, um, Fred's description of it was a good one. Remember, um, as Dante ascends from one level to another, the angel will take off a pea. That's a, symbolically or allegorically, it's an image of a sin being removed and a greater clarity of sight, a greater, a greater participation in love. With every act of humility we perform, we get closer to Christ, more like him. So everything about purgatory is God's work to help us be reunited with him, to be one with him. It's an image of the church on earth. Um, okay. I'd like to go to the text. Any... I feel like I've just given a catechism instead of Dante. 
have a question about yeah. the waiting mm -hmm. period. Yeah. So in one of the cantos I just read, Statius, so he was in purgatory for 500 years. Say it again, start over. Uh, in the last canto I read, I think it was I'm 21. Mm -hmm. Is it Statius? Mm -hmm. he, he said that he was in purgatory for 500 years. Mm -hmm. So... <laughs> Think, think about how, how large Dante's, the, how large is the hope that Dante wants for us? So, I mean, if there's a measurement, 500, how do we measure 500 years? But anyway, it's, it's so funny, but. Yeah, it's sorry. a long time, right? Because I wasn't, I wasn't thinking 500 years, but when <laughs> Mountain Shook, it was when that shade thought it was ready to right. move up. Yes. So I thought it would be the other way around, that God would think that you've cleansed yourself and now you're ready to move. Not that you yourself think you're ready to move up. Or am I misunderstanding that? No, and I don't, actually, I mean, I haven't been, I haven't read the, so I'm not there yet. Oh. But well, hold on, but I, but I, I should know it well enough. Um, everything you just described, is faithful to the text as I remember it, but I don't remember anything being presented that would give us the impression that this is, um, by Stasius is doing, everybody in purgatory knows that it's only by God's grace that they can do that, so. Well, so that's kind of what I was thinking too, but then I must, I should probably go back and read The mountain shudders, wait, this is good, it's a good reminder too, and I'm glad you brought it up. Um, the mountain sh shakes. It's, <laughs> it's like nature approving, nature responding. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's jumping in joy for the release of a soul. Stasius is going to accompany Virgil and Dante the rest of the way, but what it makes clear is he's already been freed, which means he has nothing to repent on the level, say, the level of lustful. That's not a problem for him. I think the answer to her question is mm -hmm. it's on page 313. And you, you, you've got to read both of those. Go ahead and read them, Fred. Page 313? <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, go ahead and read them. Uh, it says, Up here the mountain trembles when some soul feels itself pure enough to stand erect or start at once to climb, then comes the shout. The will to rise alone proves purity. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the, once freed, it takes possession of the soul and wills the soul to change its company. So it's kind of a mutual thing. The soul realizes it's ready only because it is. Okay. Yeah. And you do once you become, he could, once you become could been, one with God again. Yeah. Then you then you know both at the same time. It's sort me, of the way I read Yeah, that. yeah. It's exactly that way too. Let me put it a little bit differently to. Um, nobody could be here without God's help. We've seen that all along. Nobody could have done what they did without God's help. But this is an amazing. I'm so glad you picked it out. Um, God wants us free. I mean, genuinely free. St. Augustine's line, which we'll encounter at the top of purgatory, will be love and do what you will. Because whatever you, whatever you will in that state will be good. You'll be, that is, God is not a deus ex machina. He's not this puppet master moving. He wants us free. He knows he, we can't do anything without him. 
But he's not doing it for himself. He's not saying, look at me. I mean, the self that Debbie was talking about earlier. He wants us to be free, to love freely. As he, wait, did God create the world so that people would love him? He created it freely so that we could all enter into the love he had with the Trinity. So there's not a tyrant. I just so dislike Milton's treatment of God. It's not a tyrant. He's not spiteful. Everything, everything he does, he, he does with respect of us. He doesn't force his way into our... Everything he does is subtle. He tries to protect our free will. But his aim in everything is to help us become free. So when the soul's ready, I mean, just as Fred, I'm so glad you read the book, the will to rise alone proves purity. It shows your will is good, perfectly good. If the, if the will had wanted to rise before it was ready, it would have been motivated by some sin. There would still be something there not, not gotten rid of. <clears throat> so when this happened, it shows the will is free. It's got a kismic way. Lo- love, love and do what you will is St. Augustine's line. Sorry, Fred. I said it's kind of catechismic for me in a way. I mean, how can you be ready unless you know you're ready? <laughs> right? Right. <laughs> yeah. I think it's, it's, it's great that you pointed that out because I think it's really profound. <laughs> See, it wouldn't be over your head. wouldn't not be over your head. It's really interesting, too. It's, I mean, when you think about it, the, the way we're describing it right now, <laughs> Can it happen if we don't get the self out of the way? You know, it's, it's like there's no more dichotomy where you're thinking about yourself, wondering about yourself. There's not that dichotomy. Am I ready? Am I? You've reached a point where your will will... There will be no division, no dichotomy anymore. You'll be one in being, complete. There won't be the division. Isn't there, I mean, for most of us right now, I mean, Debbie was so right on. He said he's already forgiven you. Doesn't that exactly describe, in, by the contrast with God, the dichotomy that exists on our own soul? Mm-hmm. I've sinned. Even, you know, when, when I said, there's the self again. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like we're stepping outside of ourselves and going, I sinned. It's apart from us. We're still in a dualism with our own nature. When this moment happens, there's a wholeness to the soul. It's, re- it's recovered. It, I mean, we'll see it completed in the Paradiso, but that dichotomy is overcome, I think. So when Stasius goes up, we're to understand that he's, he's going to see what Dante and Virgil see, um, but with no need of doing penance. The mountain freedom, it shows his will is good. Let's go to I'm not. Um, remember last time when we met, we, um, Dante was carried up to St. Peter's Gate by Lucia, who is light. Remember, she's the one that Mary went to 
to get Beatrice. So she's an, she's an, she's an image of grace, light. And, and re remember, it's interesting, she, as an image of light, it means she's translucent. It's the way grace is in our life. Very often, I, I'm assuming this is true for most of us. Um, Debbie's example, I thought, was a really good one. There are times in our life where we feel a blessing and we look back on it and become sure, but it was too subtle at the time to see it. You know, grace is operating in a subtle way. We don't often see it until later looking back and we put things together. Um, she carries him up. When he comes to the step, he's asked to, um, to go through what is really the process of confession, contrition. Remember, he has to step on the white step, then the black step, and then the red step. The white step is um, a mirror. He's, he has to see himself clearly, truthfully, for, to not let his pride get in the way of admitting guilt. Um, th and that's something we're supposed to carry with us all of our life when we go to confession. Um, to put ourselves away so that we can get our pride out of the way so we can do it. The black step is the, an image of the, remember it's cracked and broken and it's an image of the soul itself, the sins, the disorders in it. And the red step I think is the step of fire, the purification, the sacramental step. He will have to, that will be the, the act of forgiveness, the purifying that goes on. And then he's given an image of the two keys and I asked everybody what they were I, and I, 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 um, I hope everybody's clear on them. Um, <coughs> sorry. 245, one key was silver and one gold. And I suggested that uh, the two, it's interesting, the two have to go together. One without the other is um, um, ineffective, fruitless. The gold key is the authority. Remember, Peter was giving the, the keys to bind and loosen. The gold key is the authority with which to bind or loosen. The silver key is the practical wis wisdom with which to apply that authority. Okay? Just quickly, go to 147. 147? Sorry, Doc. Say 147? Yeah. Remember, I mentioned this before, um, but I want to I take a look at it now just to be clear. <clears throat> this is Guido de Montefeltro. This is, this is the, the canto from which Eliot took that passage as the epigram for Prufrock. Do you remember? There was that um, passage in Italian. Is everybody with me? You all remember it from Prufrock? Yep. <coughs> this is the man. <coughs> His words at the bottom of 147. If I thought that I were speaking to a soul who someday might return to see the world, most certainly this flame would cease to flicker. But since no one, if I have heard the truth, ever returns alive from this deep pit, with no fear of dishonor, I answer you. That's such a telling light on Prufrock. The, the sense we get is, like that from Guido, Prufrock takes us on the journey, um, on the trust that we won't divulge this. So he's taken us on this secret journey. It's this infernal world. It doesn't have, remember, it's in the world. This is not a final end. It's a soul on the world. He's going to meet some woman. We're in a social world, to all appearances, innocent, nothing going on. 
But by the end of the poem, we realize Prufrock is, belongs to an infernal world. He's so, he's so shut in on himself. Um, so this is the passage, but here's, here's where I wanted to go for the keys on page 249. <coughs> Bonifitz, Pope Bonifitz, Bonifitz, comes to Guido to ask him for advice on how to defeat a Catholic family that opposed him. Bonifitz actually went to war with a Catholic family um, because of this issue, and the story behind it apparently was that he offered Guido absolution before he committed the sin. Which means that Guido did not feel actual contrition. He wasn't sorry. He entered into a sin with no sense of needing forgiveness, and so we've got an awful abuse of authority and a practical application of it. So in this sense, neither key worked. And here on page 149, Fear not, I tell you, the sin you will commit, it is forgiven. Now you will teach me how I can lev level Palestrina to the ground. Mine is the power, as you cannot deny, to lock and unlock heaven. Two keys I have, those keys my predecessor did not cherish. Go down, I said, Father, since you grant me absolution for the sin I find, I must fall into now. Ample promise with a scant fulfillment will bring you triumph. That is, promise everything to them as your way of getting rid of them and give them nothing. <coughs> so he lies. By the way, remember, this is the level of false counselors. This is the level in which we saw um, Ulysses, Odysseus, describing that, God, describing that, that journey into the mountain, remember? Is everybody with me? Mm -hmm. He went past the pillars into the mountain, wanting to climb that mountain. It was an expression of his wanting a completeness no man can have on his own. Because that completeness only comes with God's help. And the ship goes down. So this is the level for false counselors. Guido's here because he gave false counsel to the Pope. And the Pope, we know, will be, I mean, according to Dante, the Pope's going to be in hell as well, along with lots of other Popes. So. Okay, let's go back, <clears throat> turn back on page 247. They go through the gate, the, the guardian tells him not to look back on page 247 in the middle. We finally squeeze through that needle's eye. Why is it called a needle's eye? Yeah. New Go ahead. I, I don't know if it's relevant or not. I mean, just I just when I hear the needle's eye, it just reminds me of Christ. Easier for a man to go through the eye of a needle. Easier for a rich man to go through the eye of a needle than to enter into heaven. Wait. It's easier for a camp. Is it easier for a rich man to go through the eye of a needle? No, easier, easier for, for a camel, camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich, rich man. To get it, right? Yeah. Can a camel get through a needle? Eye. No. Well, it can. No. Wait. Hold on. Hold on. No. Hold on. It's easy. The reason he's saying that is because it's impossible, and then goes on to say, "But with God, nothing's impossible." So, so here the the image is they're passing through that needle's eye because. God has brought him to this point. This is, remember, Dante, we're going to find out. Dante was damned, but. I read somewhere once that the eye of the needle was a, a very small opening on the side of the cat. Yeah. Yes. You know, oh, it's a, it's a gate. structure, right. but, you know, gate. 
that the camel had to be stripped of everything and down on its knees and you know to get through this. But it was Yeah. yeah. I think <laughs> So to me it was like that we need to then be free of all the Bible. Things, yeah. I think the problem, at least the difficulty I have with that, I saw that same, I don't remember where it was, some, something, but to me that was one of the, that's an example of the tendency of the modern mind uh -huh. to try to square everything with reason. I well, because I was taking it literally, the eye through a silk stone needle. Yeah. No, I'm taking it literally in the Bible too. I think Christ is making the point that no man can do it. Yeah. No man, no man can do it any more than a camel can. It's just impossible. What Christ... Oh, it's really interesting to watch Christ's arguments and St. Paul afterward. If you watch their arguments, they're all a fortiori. If this, then this more. Or if this less, then this, you know. Um, it's just, there, so many of their arguments are take that form, and it is there. A man can't do it any more than a camel, but the point is to say nothing's impossible with God. So even if we can't do it, God can help us to do things we could ourselves. <coughs> so they've entered that needle, gone through it. <clears throat> now quickly here, because this is so important. 248. Now, here's the first problem with sight that comes into focus in this canto. When Dante comes on the ledge of the Proudful, he's going to see men who are bowed over with these enormous boulders on their backs. The reason for that is bec because of their pride they didn't do small things. Their pride was too big. Now they're being asked to humble themselves. They're bowed over. They have to learn to humble themselves. So now they're going to have to carry weights. What's on front of them on the path of the ledge are checks. Everybody look here. On the ledge, they're bowed over. They're looking at checks of their sins. So they're constantly reminded of their sins. On the face of the mountain are images of the goads. To see them, they have to turn their necks. Which is Dante's way of saying is, we have to learn, in our pride, we have to learn to make an effort to see things outside of the way that's comfortable for us. We have to strain to do this. It's another way of saying strain to listen or strain to see. We, we can't just cut things out because they don't fit with us. They have to work hard to get the help that they need. So, 248. Pure white marble. On its flawless face were carvings that would surely put to shame not only Polyclete, but nature too. The angel came down to announce on earth the peace longed for by the weeping centuries, which broke the ancient ban and opened heaven, appeared before our eyes a shape alive, carved in an attitude of marble grace and effigy that could have spoken words. That is, it seems alive, not a sculpture, not something sculpted into the marble. One would have sworn that he was saying Ave, for she who... So the first goad, Mary saying, yes, the angel saying, Hail Mary. Um, Virgil says, look beyond, go down. Another story cut into the stone crossing in front of Virgil, I drew near so that my eyes could take it all in. Carved in the spread of marble there, I saw the cart and oxen with the holy ark, a warning not to exceed one's competence. It is. Ahead of it moves seven separate choirs testing my senses. One of these, i.e. hearing, one of these said no, the other one said yes, they truly sing. 
With equal art, the smoke which censors poured was traced so faithfully that eyes and nose could not decide between a yes or no. Ahead and far beyond is um, Michael. Depicted on the other side was Michael as from a palace window she looked on, her face revealed her sadness and her scorn. Go down, the last one, there rode the noble Trajan emperor clinging to his bridle as she wept a wretched widow. Go down, Lord, she says, avenge my son who's been killed, my heart is cut with grief. Go over 250. He seemed to answer, you, you will have to wait for my return. She like one impelled by frantic grief, but oh my Lord, if you should not return, and he who takes my place will do it for me. Um, she, how can you let another's virtue take the place of yours? She reminds me of the woman who's saying to Christ, feed me the breadcrumbs. She will not relent. To, you know, it's her persistence that finally makes Christ give in and say. And here, the widow's persistence forces Trajan to stop. He says, take comfort for I see I must perform my duty now before I leave. Justice so wills and pity holds me here. Notice this is a good example of pity. It's not a habit. He takes pity on her because she's been so persistent in asking for help. So these are the first three goads, Mary, um, David, and Trajan. And one of them's pagan. Well, I mean, you can say David is, but each one of them is an example of humility that answers the sin of the courts, okay? Now, um, going over, on 254, Dante comes across the penitents who are bowed over with these boulders on, and the first one he meets is um, um, Umberto. 254, I am Umberto, and the sin of pride has ruined not only me, but my house, dragging them with it to calamity. The weight which I refused while I was still alive, now I'm forced to bear among the dead until the day that God is satisfied. Go down. Oh, I said, you must be that Odorisi, honor of Gubbio, honor of the art which men in Paris call illuminating. That's the second. Go on over. <coughs> he makes it clear at the top of 255. For pride like that, the price is paid up here. I would not even be here were it not that while I could still sin, I turned to God. Go on over 256. That's Provenzan Savani, he replied. He's here because presumptuously he sought to gain control of all Siena. Um, he would have been down below for a longer time, down at the very bottom. While at the apex of his glory in Siena's marketplace of his free will, putting aside all shame, he took his stand, and there to ransom from his suffering a friend who was immured in Charles's jail he brought himself to do what chilled his veins. I say no more, my words I know are vague, but your own neighbors not too long from now will help you to interpret what I've said. It was this deed of his that sped him here. So he begged for bread <coughs> and to ransom a friend from jail. So he finally got down on his knees and did something humiliating. Um, Like the um, anti-purgatory group, the relationship between them. What's the relationship? What's the principle at stake for each one of these three sinners? We meet three sinners here in the level of hell. Purgatory. Or sorry, purgatory. Purgatory. 
again? I'm sorry. What, what, what was your question again? <sighs> What's the context, the larger context, in which we're supposed to see the sin? What's the context for Umberto, for Odorisi, and for um, Provenzan? For Umberto, it's the family. For Odorise, it's art. And I want to come back to that in a second. For Provenzan, it's um, politi political power. Why that order? And by the way, let me go to the second one, um, to Odorisi. Remember, for art, Dante would not have meant just painting and poetry and music. It would have been the whole, this is really important for the Middle Ages because we've changed it so. It would have been the whole category of what today we would know by the word industry against nature. We saw that in hell at the level of the, um, of the users. It's industry versus nature. It's what we do with nature that is, it is either serving a good end or a bad end. We either abuse nature, we try to get out of it more than it offers, so we abuse it, or less than. So that whole category would include the arts, but it would also, so it would include a C CEO, president of a banking firm. How well, is, how well is he using his arts to make that a good industry? Or, or is he using his arts to abuse it at the expense? We, the modern world is full of that. Plant, toxic plants and, you know, um, medical insurance who's, who abuse their medical things to gain money when people's lives are put at risk. So, <coughs> Dante's putting them in this order because I think in his mind that order indicates the graver dangers for us as humans. And if that isn't clear, let me, let me try here. When I look at the Bible, I'm not sure of this, but when I look at the Bible, I'm not a Bible scholar, but I try to pay attention to it. It seems to me that the two greatest disorders that Christ faces are um, the religious disorders in the Jewish hierarchy, the, the whole tradition out of which he came. Re the, way, the, the, um, the religious leaders particularly, but the Jewish people and their beliefs, and the family. Those are the two greatest dangers that he faces. The two, the, the, two, the two areas in which sins are greatest. Religious belief, the family. And if the family isn't clear, let me just give you a couple of the quotes. He says in one passage, Any, anyone who puts his wife ahead of me, husband ahead of me, I will have nothing to do with. He's doing that because he knows how great the, the, the influence of the family is in our human life. If we're, not, if we're not making God more important than the family, we're making the family more important than him, we're in trouble, always. Um, I came to divide mother from daughter, father from son, sister from brother. There it is. And the other one, which to me has gotten more grisly, the older I've gotten, is where he calls the man to come with him, and the man says, let me bury my father. And you remember, is there, I, I used to just look past that response, because it was so obvious, you know, just shouldn't do that, come with me. But, he, but his response isn't that generally. He says, let the dead bury the dead. 
I take that to mean when you make your family more important than God, you're among the living dead. And I take that seriously. When I look at the movies today, these, these television series about the living dead, because they are so popular, you know, vampires and living dead, I don't watch them, but I personally believe they are as popular as they are because that's a symptom of our age. That the American, the American culture is a culture filled with the living dead today. It's a culture that has turned away from God. Popes, several popes ago, said that um, we live in a culture of death. This is a death culture that America lives in. I think he was right on, absolutely right on. To the extent that we live for wealth or luxury or pleasure or and put those things above God, we're going through life. So Christ is pretty explicit, you know, in, in, in the, the, the dangers that he's warning us against in the family. And I think that's why Dante has the sinners here. In, because, I mean, if you think about it, it's really obvious. We give birth to our children, they're ours. The temptations towards pride are going to be greater there than anybody. She's mine. Look at her grades. See how well she's doing. I mean, we go on and on and on and on without any sense of dangers to us. So I think it's natural. I mean, our families are so much a product. We want to show off. We want to be proud. And, and, it, and then a time comes where we realize we've been doing something wrong, you know, that something's, something's not quite right, and we never saw it coming. So I don't think this is an accident. It shows how realistic Dante is and what he's doing. Artistic excellence next, and then political power. Okay. Now take a look at um, the um, the goat or the checks. Page two sixty four. Just before they leave the, the cornice, um, oh wait, sorry, sorry, no. Mm, 258, just before they leave the cornice. Now remember, to see the goads, they have to turn, they have to strain, they have to work hard at seeing. That means they have to go against everything in them that's comfortable. Um, just so I saw, but far more true to life, being divinely wrought stone carvings there covering the path that juts out through the rope. I saw on one side him who was supposed to be the noblest creature of creation, plunged swift as lightning from the height of heaven. Who's that? Wow. Mm -hmm. Satan? Appropriately, right? First goad should be. He's the cause of all sin. So. First goad that Dante encounters is Satan. I saw Briarius on the other side, one of the giants who tried to overthrow the gods. 259, I saw um, Thimbrius, saw Pallas and Mars still armed, close to their father, looking down at severed, scattered members of the giants. I saw Nimrod, Niobe, he saw Saul, Arachne, Rehoboam, um, going over 260, um, he saw Troy, gaping from the ashes, um, again and again. Now let me just quickly run through this. Satan, Nimrod, was the creator of the Tower of Babel. Niobe took pride in her parents. She had 14 kids. She boasted that she was greater than the gods. Hold on to that. Saul, political power. 
Arachne, Art, Rehoboam. Um, he took pride in his lineage from his father. Acmea, family treachery over a bracelet. Um, the son of Sennacherib killed their father after um, defeat. Um, Tomris killed Cyrus after he killed their son. Three quarters, 75% of those goads deal with family relationships. Mythic, real, historical. All of them, the greater sins came out of families. Proud Ilium, if you've read the Iliad, you know Paris took Helen. Early on in that epic, the, the Trojans gather together to have a council to decide what to do. The, the council is, give her back. Prime the father? No, don't give her back. Let the It seems like a, pie, a religious act. He says, no, let the gods decide between us. Like he's being very pious. Should have told his son to take that woman back because all of Troy is going to be destroyed mm -hmm. over a foolishness in the family. Quickly go on over. 264, they come to the level of the envious and hear, they hear voices in the air. Middle of 264, the first voice that came flying past us saying out loud and cleared the words, Vinum non habet. Mary, there it is again, they have no wine. Okay? Next one, I am Orestes, and that voice too swept by. This is Orestes' friend. This is his quote. Orestes was going to be killed, and his friend offered to take his place. So it's a mercy towards his friend. Oh, I said, Father, what voices are these? And just as I was asking, that's a third said, passing by, love those who do you harm. It could be any number of people. Christ, maybe Stephen, Nazi Christ, um, Paul. Um, going over, those were the goats. On page 267, we encounter Sapia, a woman here. She says, 267, I was a Sienese here with the rest. I mend my evil life with tears and beg of him that he reveal himself to us. Though named Sapia, Sapient, I was not. I always reveled in another's grief. She describes all of her town people getting killed and her taking a joy in watching it. It happened that my townspeople were engaged in battle just outside of Coley. I prayed God for what already he had willed. Our men were scattered on the plain and forced to take the bitter course of flight. I watched the chase seized with a large joy, surge of joy so fierce, I raised my shameless face to God and I cried, I have lost all my fear of the God, frightening. Um, go on over, um, we'll do this and then stop. They meet Guido on the level of envy. Now remember, when Dante sees the souls, they're all huddled against the bank of the, of the, the pathways here, they're huddled against the bank of the mountain because their eyes are wired shut, okay? So they can't move, they have to wait but they hear these voices going by. So they're learning to see through hearing. They've got to learn to see again differently. They have to hear. They have to, God, this is just amazing. They have to learn to hear, to listen. Um, 
272, since God with his will's grace so shine in you, so generously stingy I shall not be. Gwydel del Duca used to be my name. Envy was quick to fire my blood. Whenever I would see someone rejoice, you'd see me turning livid at his joy. I sowed this envy, now I reap this straw. O human race, why do you place your hopes where partnership must always be denied? Now I want to leave it there, go on over, page 277, <coughs> as Dante passes through the next stairway, um, in the middle of 277, past him we went, already climbing where Beate Misericordes from behind came ringing and consequent conqueror rejoiced. So, he, Dante's conquering, he's overcoming his sin. The, the, the Beatitude is, blessed are the merciful. Okay. Now, I want to put all of this together, but let me try to do this quickly. Um, <clears throat> Dante asked Virgil, bottom of 277, what Guido del Doca meant. What did that spirit from Romagna mean who spoke of partnership and of denial? Knowing the price he pays for his worst fault, he answered, naturally, he censors it, hoping that others will have less to hear. Because you make things of this world your goal, which are diminished as each shares in them. Envy pumps hard the bellows for your size. But if your love were for the lofty spheres, your cravings would aspire for the heights, and fear of loss would not oppress your heart. The more there are up there who speak of ours, the more each one possesses, and the more charity burns intensely in that realm. Dante is still perplexed. How can, one go how can one good that's shared by many souls make all those who best possess it wealthier than, it, than if it were possessed by just a few? Virgil again, since you insist on limiting your mind to thoughts of worldly things alone, from the true light you reap only the dark. We can see Dante's doing just what I described. He, he's still seeing things in worldly terms. Just, you know, just like in the Inferno, when he's... he's all of his questions shows that his perspectives are worldly. Virgil answers, That infinite, ineffable, true good that dwells in heaven speeds instantly to love as light rays to a shining surface would. Just as much ardor as it finds, it gives. The greater the proportion of our loves, the more eternal goodness we receive. Okay, this, this will be, we'll tie it up here. What did Guido meant when he said, Why do you... Why do you place your hopes where partnership must always be denied? He brings that question to Dante again. Um, and Dante tries to explain it by referring to something that goes on in heaven that, that is its opposite. Um, what, it, why, what is envy? Why are the, the eyes of the penitents here wired shut? And what do we learn from what Guido said? Why are their eyes shut? Remember, the contrapasso gives away the sin and also the answer to it, so... When envy motivates you, it colors what you do. When, when you look through your eye... I have this sight here, it's just stunning, it's just so important. When you look through your eyes at what's going on within other people, what other people... What do you see if, if you see through envy? We, this is sort of stunning. You watch Christ healing the blind always, you know. He's, we think, guy couldn't see. Very often he's giving them a spiritual sight too, but but only in sight you only see what's on the surface, not really what's underneath. 
So in order to really see, they had their sight removed so they'd have to use the other senses. Yeah. Anybody else? I'd go even darker. I get, you know, my dark soul. Well, if, if you, it's, it's that you see what you want, and you want whatever, whatever is out here. It may be superficial. I mean, it, it is superficial, but you see what they have, or uh, it could be gifts that they have, they, anything um, that you desire, and you can actually visually see it. But what do you want to happen to it? Well, you want it for yourself and be taken from them. Yeah. Whether you get it for yourself or not, you want them to lose it because you don't have True. it. I mean, she, she watched her whole village. I mean, that's scary, just scary. She prayed to heaven, God, thank God for, which was not God's motive. She, she, was, she took a joy in their loss. So if envy is behind you, what, what you're seeing is the evil wanting whatever good is there, whatever good is there, you make Black. You want it done away with. Mm -hmm. So you turn the good outside of you into something bad. And are glad when somebody... So your sight is not good. I mean, it's, it's, it's wanting the bad to come out of something good. So because they refuse the good in life, their eyes are shut now. They've got to learn to see differently in order to regain their sight. Now what did Guido mean when he said partnership and denial? He's making that point. This is my comic example. If you're holding Thanksgiving dinner at your house, and um, it's only one family coming, and your mom is making two pecan pies, and you love pecan pie, and suddenly you get wind that Aunt Mildred is bringing her family, there's going to be five more kids. <laughs> you hide the pie. What <laughs> You need to go to confession again. Now I see what you were worried about. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, I'm so glad for you guys. Aunt Mildred is bringing five more kids. What's your response to their coming? Have an accident on the way. <laughs> oh, God. Don't come. Get sick. Why? Why? Yeah, I mean, here's the problem. It, this is so good. What Dante is just sort of amazing. You've got two pies and, let's say, eight kids the way they're, so you're going to have four. Now another family comes. You've got five more kids. What does that mean for your own share? Smaller. Huh? Smaller. Yeah. Right? You're going to get less than what you want. And remember, we've talked about the commercial regime, money and wanting money to get ahead, and how pride and envy are from Dante are the motivating factors because since its end is money, not love, not traditional values, what Shakespeare showed those of you the traditional values go. When people want money, it directs everything they do, and the traditional values disappear, which is what is going on. The more there are, the less you get. Because your mind is on what you want. Now what happens if you go to, when you set again, he says, Virgil said, the trouble with you is you keep setting your mind on things of the world. Um, because the more there are that share in it, the less you get. So, it, so think about how important greed is. Because it means you want more. And you don't want to give up 
Think about all the wealthy people who don't want to lose what they, they've got. But he said, if you turn your mind to heavenly things, but if your love were for the lofty sphere, your cravings would aspire for the heights, and fear of loss would not oppress your heart. The more there are up there who speak of ours, the more each one possesses, and the more charity burns intensely in that realm. Go down. That infinite, ineffable, true God that dwells in heaven speeds instantly to love as light rays to a shining surface would. Just as much ardor it finds it gives, the greater the proportion of our love, the more eternal goodness we receive. When a soul enters heaven, does it just increase the love there incrementally by one? Go back to this. At the infinite ineffable true good that dwells in heaven speeds instantly to love as a light rays to a shining surface. If everybody is a shining surface and one comes in, it's going to multiply like the loaves. It will go and it will go on infinite, infinitely multiplying. Because you become one with everybody else. You're reflected in. So the description he's giving of heaven is extraordinary. If we put it in quantitative terms the way we do, one, two, three. We will miss. It's as a ray going to a shining surface. It multiplies infinitely off of everybody. So the soul entering heaven will multiply its loves. It will, I mean, it's kind of just stunning. When people think of heaven as a static place, I think, think again. You know, people tend to think in abstractions. Nothing ever changes in heaven. Or If you've got an infinite God, how can it not do anything but keep on going? It's just... Anyway, this is the level of envy, okay? Last thing, why is mercy the virtue to answer envy? Mary, they had no wine. I am Orestes, he offers himself for his friend. The angel says, blessed are the merciful, as he passes by. Why is mercy, how is mercy an answer to um, envy? How, or put it differently, how is it the opposite of envy? What's the opposite of focusing on yourself? You're basically focusing, focusing on others. I mean, you go back to the pie example. Instead of being worried about how small your piece of pie is, you should be thinking about the fact that 13 people Glad are going yes. yeah, to at least have a taste of the pie. Yeah, yeah, that's so good. To be glad that somebody else can, how good that is. Um, Envy, envy. Here, think about Mary's, they have no wine. Envy makes you sad, happy when somebody loses. Mercy makes you sad when somebody loses. Right? Mary, they have no wine. I am Orestes. He's offering himself. He, he doesn't want Orestes to be heard. So in answering pride, the, the penitents are asked to practice humility, to pick up boulders, to bend down, to strain to see. The level of envy, the, their eyes are wired shut um, since they refused the good that was offered in the world and made it bad. Now they have to close their eyes and they have to learn to listen, to strain to listen. So they're, they're learning to see through what they hear. 
um, in the one they're using, they're, they're learning humility, and the other they're learning mercy. And we've seen that it, at each level, as the sin gets stripped, the souls develop a fuller way of seeing, a more complete way of seeing. Okay. Everybody looks so quiet. What's. I still had the Say it again. What'd you say? 